The sermon this Lord's Day will come from the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, so please turn there in your copy of God's Word. Thank you to the music team for leading us in worship. It is providential that this is also the chapter that we read for our New Testament reading earlier in the service. I had planned for some time to address this very issue and question, and it seemed appropriate for many reasons that will become clear later, I think, that this message should fall in line with the theme of the Life Together series. But months ago, looking ahead, I saw that right around the time I hoped to preach this message as a standalone that we would also be reading through Philippians as a church in our New Testament reading portion. We've already heard the, read, heard the text read so well just a few moments ago, but I want to read it again, uh, verses 8 through 17 particularly, just for good measure, and to focus us all on the subject and question at hand. So Philippians 3, verses 8 through 17. And while I read these verses, I want you to note, take special attention to note, that Paul is speaking of two things, two separate things. He is speaking about assurance regarding present realities, present or settled realities. That's the first category. And secondly, he speaks of something that he seeks eagerly for, something that he calls a prize. So beginning in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing gift that you have given us. You've given it to us thousands of years ago and preserved it for us all this time. Thank you for your wisdom in sending the Spirit to stir in the heart of the Apostle Paul to write to the Philippian church exactly what you knew your people would need even these thousands of years later. And what a glorious truth, Father, that we are summoned to follow the example of the Apostle Paul in striving for this same prize, this same reward. Help us understand what this means. Grant us the strength and focus and courtesy to one another to allow for diligent thought about these words and this summons. And if you would now take a moment where you are in your own heart to pray for yourselves that the Lord would grant you to hear his word and to understand it in joy and obey it in zeal. Also pray for those sitting around you that we would be guarded from distractions and that we would each behave in a way that considers others more significant than ourselves. 
And finally, if you would also pray for me. This message represents a great burden and joy at the same time. And I am eager to be faithful and helpful in everything I say. Please pray to the Lord on my behalf in these ways. Father, we love you and we trust you. Where we do not trust you or your wisdom or your ways, please reveal that to us now as we examine your word. Please do at this time what you will, and may it please you and exalt the name of Christ in our midst. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can tell from the title of this sermon, we're going to be discussing Seeking the Reward. And how the mindset of the Apostle Paul is meant to be modeled by believers everywhere. What is your life? What are you seeking? What is the all-consuming goal of your life? These are the kinds of questions that the Bible helps us ask and answer honestly. And it helps us know if our answers are good or not. To quote Kid President, don't stop believing unless your dreams are stupid. Then get better dreams. The Bible has that effect on us. It may cause us to be honest with what we're actually seeking, but it may tell us that's not right. Philippians 3 will help us ask and answer these questions, these big questions in a particular way and show us some very helpful and practical ways to set the trajectory of our lives. So today, we're talking about how to live this Christian life, how to put it all together and to live your life to please the Lord and love Him with all that you are. We will come to the exposition of the text technically in a little bit, in a few moments, but in order to show you how big the, the, the massive scope of this question of seeking the reward is, I want to discuss a few things in order to set the stage properly. The point of doing this, of discussing these two things that I'll tell you in a little bit, is to elevate the significance of the question. What are you seeking? Are you seeking the reward? The two things I want to address before we dive in are, number one, biblical ethics, or what does the Bible, how does the Bible define right and wrong when it comes to what we humans do? And then number two, biblical anthropology, or what it means to be human. So we're addressing this to set the stage. Biblical ethics, biblical anthropology. You'll have to trust me that this is needful. In biblical ethics, when we ask the question, how does the Bible define what is right and wrong, there are many easy answers. You might say, well, whatever pleases or glorifies God is right, and whatever does not please or glorify God is wrong. And that's right and good and true. But we're asking a more pointed question. How do we apply a definition like that to what we do as humans? collapsing a huge amount of data and history into uh, this summary, but to answer that more penetrating question comes down to three focal points biblically. First is what you actually do. Without anything else, we must consider if the action itself is pleasing to the Lord or not. This is not the only concern, but it is the most obvious. It won't matter if your intentions were good or if your heart was in the right place if what you do displeases the Lord on your own. It is obvious that the ends do not justify the means if the means displease the Lord on their own. So, first pillar of biblical ethics, what you actually do, the action itself. Second, assuming the action itself on its own is pleasing to the Lord, we have to realize that that's not enough. We have to do the right things for the right reasons. There is what you do, and then there is why you do it. This is as important as it is obvious. We know, sadly, it is not only very easy, but very common to do things that outwardly look very respectable and even godly, but in our hearts lingers corruption. One can even even enter a place like this and sing songs and lift holy hands and shed tears and preach 
and serve. And it can all be for the wrong reasons. To gain the praise of man, putting on airs, seeking to satisfy the flesh. So, what you do, why you do it, and then third is, let's just assume that we're doing the right things and we're doing them for the right reason. Is that it? Not quite. We must also feel the right way about it. Probably more important than you think. As I've said before, people dismiss the significance of feelings or postures of the heart. Puddle Glum, the Marsh Wiggle, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, part of the Chronicles of Narnia, is always unhappy. Everything is doom and gloom for him. He does the right thing for the right reasons, and he's one of the more noble characters in the story, but who wants to be like that? Maybe you do. Do you have a resolved stubbornness to be vaguely grouchy all the time? Or even maybe you have an outright commitment to be pessimistic. At one point in the story, Puddleglum, the Marsh Wiggle, and the children are trapped underground, and he remarks, there's one good thing about being trapped down here, it'll save on funeral expenses. Does that sound like you? Let's obey and serve the Lord. His glory is worth it. It'll probably turn out badly. Maybe if I die to self enough while I'm alive, it won't be so hard when it actually comes my time to die. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, we ought not be that way. To summarize the teaching of one theologian, the Lord is not honored by gloomy worshipers. Serve the Lord with gladness, Psalm 100, verse 2. So that is biblical ethics. Do the right things for the right reasons and to put it in the way that some of your parents probably say to your kids and have a good attitude about it. That's biblical ethics. So what about biblical anthropology? What does it mean to be human? Biblical anthropology, very quickly, is the Bible's teaching that to be human, to be made in the image of God, is to have a physical body which includes the brain. But we're obviously more than a physical body. And more than our brains, there is a non-physical part of us. The Bible calls this non-body or non-physical part of us by various names, probably indicating different aspects or facets or faculties of this non-body part of us. You will find this non-body part in the Bible described with using many different words. It's called the heart, the mind, which is different from the brain, the soul, the spirit, the will. But in addition to the body and the non-body part of us, are our affections. It's it's more fundamental than our feelings or attitudes. They are our loves. The deep commitments of the will. The resolutions that you have committed to keep. So all of that together. Why why discuss these two basic questions? Because in some sense, I want these things to feel overwhelming to you. Why? Why would I do that to you? Because getting all that right, doing the right thing, for the right reasons, with the right attitude, loving the Lord your God with all that you are physically, all that you are not physically, and in the affections and the commitments of your will, is a basic definition of holiness. You've got to do all that at the same time. And God not only commands that level of purity and clarity and service towards Him, He demands it. So it is overwhelming. And to examine each facet in the way we just discussed and to try to address it all separately is too big a task. But there is a shortcut. There is a biblically sanctioned shortcut. There is a way to get at all of those things and address every action you do and why you do it and how you feel about it in a most penetrating way and to apply all of that to who you are in your body in your non-body part, and in your affections, commitments of the will. And the uniting of all of that and the simplification of all biblical ethics and anthropology is found in this question. What are you seeking? What are you pursuing? What is it you really want? What is your quest? What is it that you yearn for? 
And to help us see this and how these ways of asking it address so much all at once, I hope you can now see why Philippians 3 is so important and helpful. To be human then seems to be in large part expressed in what you strive towards. What, what, the, what the spirit of man goes out towards and seeks. One of the reasons the Apostle Paul is such an important and central figure to Christians for so many believers for so many centuries is that more than, say, someone like the Apostle John, we get such great insight to the life of his mind and heart and will. He lets us in, if you will. He opens up the doors to his heart and mind and tells us what he's thinking, what he's feeling, and why. We don't get that in almost any other biblical author. Not as, and, and with none of them, not as much as the Apostle Paul. This is, we might say, in Philippians 3, he tells us what his obsession is. What his all-consuming quest is. He does everything for one thing, all in pursuit of one thing. And he's able to do the right things for the right reasons, with the right attitude, using his body, all his non-body, all his faculties, and aligned all the commitments of his will and affections to do one thing. So let's enter the world of the text that we may better understand ourselves and how the world has, how the Lord has summoned us to live. As I said, as we read the text, to note the two categories, the things that are settled or fixed realities and the things that Paul is striving for that aren't yet in his possession. This is what we will first note about the passage. The first category, objective permanent realities, Paul rejoices in these things. And if we are in Christ, we should rejoice in them as well. Here are five main things that Paul says from the text that you can very easily note, fall in this first category of settled, fixed realities. Number one, the Apostle Paul knows the Lord Jesus. He really does know Him. The Apostle Paul has gained the Lord Jesus. He really is His treasure. The Apostle Paul, number three, has received the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Number four, the Apostle Paul has fellowship with Christ's sufferings. Number five, the Apostle Paul has the hope now of the resurrection in the future. What Paul is saying in these verses is that he has suffered the loss of all things, that he might have these. It's not meant to indicate a state of suspense, or like it may or may not happen. He's saying, this is why I did it, for this purpose, a perfect participle. This is actually the case. I have these things. I did all that for this purpose. I trusted in Christ to receive His righteousness. The grammar clearly indicates that his intent, in, his intent and conviction that, for example, by abandoning the righteousness that he had from the law and trusting in Christ, he is now found in Christ with a righteousness not of his own. And that, Paul understands, is a reality now. And that can be a reality for you as well, just as an aside. This is not the main point of what we're talking about, but God's very righteousness can be yours through faith in Jesus Christ. But there is a second category of things that Paul is talking about. And the shift seems to occur in verse 12 when he says, Not that I have already obtained this. Or I'm already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So the second thing or category that Paul is talking about are the things that he is seeking or things that he does not yet have that his actions, the way he lives, is, has some way to relate to whether or not he gets them. It's possible to merely look backwards from verse 11, back to verse, um, back to verse 11 from verses 12 and say, well, the this, the antecedent, is... He's talking about the resurrection from the dead. So all he's saying is, well, uh, I haven't literally been resurrected from the dead yet, so I'm striving to make that the case. It's grammatically possible, but I think it's theologically nonsensical and dangerous. 
Never in all the Bible are we taught that we get the righteousness of Christ by faith and then you have to work really, really hard and strive really, really hard in order to guarantee your resurrection from the dead. Please don't think of it that way. It's not up to you to bring your salvation to completion at the day of Jesus Christ by the way you live. Praise be to the Lord that that is not the case. No, I think what we have here, as I have worked to try to better understand this passage for years, is that Paul is speaking of the whole thing and that he is really making it all more his own. I'll explain more of what that means in a few moments. Here's a few things that Paul says about the second category before we define it, before we even answer what the reward is, the prize. The second category is things that he is seeking or straining to gain. Number one, just that, that word, he is straining. The literal image here is to reach out or to stretch oneself out for something. I apologize to the non-sportsing people in the crowd, but the illustration fits too well. If you're familiar with the sports called American football, you know that when a player catches a ball, sometimes they have to lay their entire body out to catch it. Or if they're carrying the ball, they reach and strain towards the goal line or the first down marker. Giving every ounce of energy, all of their strengths, and all of their biological ability to reach that line. That's the imagery here. So the question is, if all that we saw above is already His, He already has the righteousness of Christ, He already has a sure, grounded hope that He will attain to the resurrection of the dead, He already knows the Lord Jesus, He already is saved, to put it in basic lingo, then what is he straining for? Why work so hard if the outcome is secure? So the question before we move on, can, can that be said of anything in your life, let alone things about the Lord? Does that image of straining, stretching, laying oneself out to achieve a goal, can that describe your life at all? That's the first thing. He is straining for these, stretching out, laying himself out to attain it. Number two, he is pressing on towards the goal. This word goal has the sense of something that is aimed at, maybe even like a target in archery or, or a particular point on the horizon that's been uh, identified. That's where we're going, the goal. So the idea that Paul is saying is that he's not just waiting around for things to happen. He's not thinking of his Christian life like a leisurely float down the river in an inner tube. Rather, he is paddling with all of his might, maybe even upstream if we're to stretch the analogy a little bit, to a particular point that he has identified as his goal. Which of those images represents your walk with the Lord? Does a leisurely float down the river in an inner tube? Or is it striving with all your might towards a destination that you've scoped out and set your goal on, set your sights on. So that's the second thing. Thirdly, he is seeking the prize. There's the sense of a reward or trophy of the upward call of God in Christ. Now what does that mean? That's the central question. We'll come to answer that in a little bit. Before we answer that, though, I want you to see how this pursuit, this striving towards the goal, the goal that Paul understands as the upward call of God in Christ, dominates Paul's mindset. All the resources of his life, his body, mind, affections, they're all aimed at this. He's even willing, might we say, able to do something that a lot of us have a great deal of trouble doing and leaving in the past the things that lie behind and pressing on towards the goal. He's able to move forward and make progress towards something because he's setting his sights on something out there and it's not just a leisurely float. This is all very surface level exegesis. I hope you understand. There are ways that we could dive deeper and spend a great deal of time in this chapter. However, what I'm trying to do today is to help you see the tension between these two categories. 
The things that are a settled fact for the Apostle Paul and the things that he is striving to make his own. He has the things in the first category and he is striving for the things in the second. The problem is, in this text, the things in the second category are not as well defined as we might like, at least on the surface. What is that thing that for Paul lies ahead? That Paul does not have full possession of yet? What is the goal that Paul is reaching towards with such focus and clarity that he has not yet come to through faith in Jesus Christ? What is the prize or reward or what is this trophy that Paul calls the upward call of God in Christ? I think... Verses 12 through 13 clue us in on what is going on here. As I indicated earlier, I think what it means is that Paul has received all these things, but there is a sense in which it it can become more his. How can that be, even generally, let alone about the things of the Lord? How can you have something, truly, and not a percentage of it, like you've got the whole thing, but then in some way it can become more yours? Well, I want to use a few illustrations to draw this out. When I was growing up, my parents took us on many different vacations, campouts, and stuff like that. And they were a gift to all of the children. There were eight of us. And so it was a big financial expense to take all eight of us on a vacation or a campout or anything like that. But depending on your attitude, that vacation, that gift, was either yours and you were enjoying it and and really taking possession of this gift, or you had a bad attitude and put on your headphones and just distanced yourself from the family and sulked. Because, I don't know, maybe there was too much sunshine. Members here know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Or think of the children of Israel. God gave their fathers the promised land. It's yours. And when they arrived at the river... But there be giants, y'all. We're not going in and taking what's ours. We're not going to grab onto, hold onto, grasp on what is already 100% ours. We won't go in and take possession because we're afraid. So that, that dynamic, something is 100% already yours, but there is a way in your heart to relate to that thing where it becomes more yours. Paul is saying, I think that there are a great number of things in the Christian life, most of them having to do with your future, your destiny, and your eternity that are yours and mine already, but they could be more yours. You could really begin to enter your inheritance now. That's what I think he's saying. The point is this, believer. The way you live your life, the priorities you set, And what it is you are actually seeking, what your all-consuming quest is, will either hurt or help your chances of taking more ownership of your inheritance. And this is what God wants from you in your life. This is the upward call of God. It is a summons. God is calling His people to be more committed and intentional in actually going out there and taking possession of it now. That we would even strain, stretch ourselves out to reach for it, to set our sights on it, to press on towards it with all eagerness and expectation so that we may actually gain the prize of the reward. Not just because of some moral objective requirements, because this is the way we're supposed to live. But that sounds like a lot of work, does it not? Further, this doesn't sound very necessary, right? If those who trust in Jesus all get to heaven anyway, one way or another, then why not just chill and float down the river in the cushy inner tube? Surely, this mindset is just for people like the Apostle Paul, or missionaries, or pastors, or I don't know, maybe deacons too, right? Well, what he says next shows us that we can't take it that way. He gives us a summons. Let 
those of us who are mature think this way. Paul indicates that in some sense this definitely isn't for all of us. But it should be. And it's only not for you if you struggle with immaturity in your faith. It should be said that the word he uses for mature here is perfect. It's almost like he's using a play on words. I'm not perfect, but let those of us who are perfect consider that you're not perfect yet and to strain towards it. He is simultaneously then summoning us to more maturity in the Christian life and to imitation. There is an attitude out there, and here's what I'm combating. Maybe you share in this. Maybe you, you when, when we give in to the flesh and the mindset of the flesh, we become more like this. The attitude is this. Well, I'll trust in Jesus. I really will, but there's no reason to strain or strive for anything because the promises of God are secure. I'll get the blessing either way. I'll, I'll put sin to death. I'll try my best to put on righteousness, but I'm not going to get overly worried about it all. I don't want all this straining and striving business. and Seeking the reward. I'm not even sure that I'm worthy of the reward. But why seek it and spend so much energy and resources on it? Heaven will be great regardless. That mindset is in maturity, according to the Apostle Paul. If you are mature, this is what he's saying, if you really understood what all of this is about the prize and the reward and the upward call of God in Christ, then you would not think that way. Paul then commands the mature, those who really get it, to embrace this mindset. Think of it this way. The way of thinking and living that I've just described for you, Paul is saying, the, the, my, my own heart and mind and affections and motivations, this way of living is for you too. If you're mature in Christ, you should think this way too, is what Paul is saying. And in this moment, don't let yourself off the hook by thinking that you already live this way, that you already strive in this way, or that the Apostle Paul means something as simple as just being really serious about your Christian faith. There's a somber, stoic seriousness that pervades in Christian cultures some of the camps, subcultures, that just needs to die anyway. But he's not talking about just being uber serious all the time. He's talking about something else. It, it, it is a way to strive towards something in order to gain it. Now, have you, Maybe I've overused the analogy of floating down the river. But there's a way to be very serious about ease and relaxation. It takes a lot of planning and care to have those moments of ease and relaxation, even in a float down the river. And I fear that this is exactly what most of our seriousness in the Christian life is about. And there will be no reward, no prize for that. Can you really honestly put your name in verses 13b through 14? If there is one thing he does, it's this. He forgets what lies behind and strains and stretches towards what lies ahead. He sets his sights on the unmoving goal of obtaining all these things and presses on with full vigor and zeal towards them. He does this to gain the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Christian maturity then is being able to honestly place your name in those verses. The fact that Paul wants us all to live this way, to become more mature, and then start living this way, is seen in what he says next concerning correction. He says, And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Which is very encouraging. If there were any doubt remaining that this manner of life was something that the Apostle Paul wanted every Christian to embrace and live, it should be removed now. He is confident that as the church in Philippi continues to grow generally and continues to submit themselves to the apostles' teaching, that even if there were some really immature believers in their midst, that they would be corrected by the Lord and that they would begin to walk in this way of life. God would reveal to them where they were wrong. Just as an aside, isn't that a really interesting description of how God works and relates to us individually? One of the dangers of not seeing 
this issue of seeking the reward rightly is that you may be talking past the Lord. What do you really want from the Lord? That's a, that's a very major question. If we were to listen closely to your prayers or uh, verbally and then to have a, a script uh, of your inner prayer life, how would someone else answer that question of what you really want from the Lord? We ask for things, good things, perhaps even just over and over and over, and all the while He's there trying to show us where we're wrong. He's trying to reveal to us where our thinking is not in accordance with this example that we have. And it's, this is not a mystical experience at all. It is the hard work of yielding yourself over to the Word of God and the example of Christ and His apostles. And this is not a matter of preference or personality type. And He shows this by issuing a warning, or at least it's an implicit warning within an exhortation. He sets up what he says in the next few verses where he reminds them that many, perhaps because they did not set their sights on obtaining the prize, now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. The sense of the exhortation is that there is a positive connection between the first category we saw of these objective realities that are unchanging and what we strive for. And I think the point is this. It's just only let us hold fast to what we've attained. He's introducing the possibility that you might not. In short, I think this is the warning implicit within all this. Failure to seek the war reward, failure to strive for those things, failure to set your sights on them and to apply all the zeal that you can muster up in making them your own will increase the likelihood that you won't hold fast to what you've obtained. This is why lukewarmness is so dangerous. There is no middle ground. In the last portion of the chapter that we will look at, at least in, with this level of focus, before moving on to questions and applications, the Apostle Paul here indicates that there is a core issue of unity at play in how we do or do not pursue this reward. We've seen this already. You haven't drawn attention to it in the use of plural pronouns. He have said us and we through this whole thing. This, this, is it. this is not an individual crest line. This is something that we together press on towards. And he indicates that the way we make progress in this is to be in close proximity with a community of believers, with others who get it and seek the reward together. It is lived out with brother and sister. He indicates that all of this by saying this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So, I was with you, church at Philippi. I lived this way before you. You know it. So imitate that example. And then those in your midst who begin to follow my example in a very consistent way, you imitate them too. Keep your eye on them. In most of our Bibles, it's broken off in, into the start of a new section. I think it all belongs together. It's all part of the central exhortation of the letter of Philippians for, for love and unity. It might be even fair to say that if we were to follow the example of the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus in seeking to obtain the reward, then we would be more involved in the family of God. If you are not really involved in the family of faith, if this is just a service to you, and you're not helping others seek the reward, and you're not helping others enter their inheritance now, then it seriously calls into question whether or not you're actually seeking the reward. And there will be far less reward, praise, honor for you at the day of Jesus Christ. This is why we create and sponsor so many opportunities for you to get to know each other. There's no substitute for spending time together so that you can help each other gain the reward. If all of us seek this deeper, we understand His Word 
we apply ourselves to this, then, then there is a compounding effect of effort. That's part of why I want to be in your midst, brothers and sisters. I can't do this on my own. If all you want is more Bible knowledge and more moving experiences in worship, then that's all you get. To paraphrase Jesus and apply it to this point, you have received your reward. If, rather, what you seek is to help others come to take more full ownership of their inheritance in Christ and to help others gain the prize on the last day, then you will have all of the first. You have deeper knowledge of the Bible and more moving worship experiences, greater joy, all of it. And the reward will be yours on the last day. So, a few questions about all of this. Why is it right to seek the reward? Why is it right to seek the reward? Or why is it even right to think this way? And it might feel odd for you that we would even ask this question. It's clearly there. Paul says for us to think this way. Why are you asking this question? But I think it is fair to ask because how is this any different than the prosperity gospel in its form and function? Is it just a trick of timing? It makes all the difference. Oh, so I can't serve the Lord and be holy so that He will bless me now, but I can serve the Lord and be holy so that He will reward me in heaven? As odd as that might sound, yes. But asking it that way confuses the issue. The problem with the prosperity of gospel is not the dynamic of serving in order to gain a reward. or um, anything else in order to get a blessing. The problem is that it does not define blessing or blessedness biblically. That's the problem. I know that there are many other problems with the prosperity gospel preachers, but I want you to see that this problem of getting the definition of blessing and blessedness wrong is not just a problem with the so-called prosperity gospel. It's a problem in most of evangelicalism. We don't have time to chase down all the problems within the different camps, but the point is this. If you define the blessing or blessedness differently than the way Paul speaks about it here, this prize, then it is wrong to seek the reward. Because it's the wrong reward and is no reward at all. Is seeking the reward right? Should we think this way? Should we serve and strive and be eager to apply ourselves in all sorts of Christian virtue in order to gain the prize, the reward? This is actually a deeply biblical idea. I'll just give you five passages of Scripture that speak to this very issue that are most moving to me. Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For... Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. It is then of the very essence of faith, faith that saves, faith that justifies, to believe not just the facts about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but to have a firm conviction about the character of God in the context of reward. To have genuine faith then is in large part to have a deeply held persuasion that the Father Himself will reward me. Or to say it with a quote from Lamentations, the Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 3, 11-15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. When I originally wanted to preach this message about seeking the reward, this was going to be the text that we were to come through. 
But here I think we have one of the most clear descriptions of how things are going to go on the Day of Judgment for believers. We will have two kinds of Christians. And maybe everything in between. There will be those who enter glory with rewards and those who enter glory with loss. And the point, the reason Paul tells the Corinthians this is to make sure that they live life seeking the reward now. And that that suffering of loss, whatever that means, doesn't happen to them. So that they will actually gain the reward. If you are not building on the foundation of Christ with an expectation of rewards on the last day, you're doing it wrong. We must seek the reward like Moses, the author of Hebrews. Again, Hebrews 11.26. He, speaking of Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It wasn't just for doing good for its own sake, and it was not disinterested holiness. It was not just to glorify God in some vague philosophical or undefined theological way. He obeyed and sought the Lord because he wanted to do so and because he knew that it would result in reward for him and that if he lived this way, he would most assuredly gain it. We see this in Paul's life as part of his willingness to suffer from 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. through for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's speaking about his death. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Notice how it's not just for sanctification and growth or some other compensatory spiritual reward in this life. No benefit in this life. Spiritual, Christ-glorifying, or otherwise will be able to make up fully for your suffering. Sometimes the way we try to encourage other people sounds like that. Even if you've got all the verses to speak about the biblical silver lining that exists now to our circumstances, it's not going to be fully fixed and it's not going to fully make up for it. There will still be sorrow and there will still be lingering pain and wounds until God Himself so utterly shakes the earth that everything that is tainted by sin is destroyed and everything that is sad becomes untrue. Only then will it even work at all for Him to wipe away every tear. Because otherwise we're just going to keep sobbing. But this verse, speaking about receiving the crown of righteousness, if we don't consider it carefully, can leave us with the impression that the reward is all the same for everyone. What well, does it matter if we all eventually get the crown of righteousness? Why work so hard and strive and strain so much for the goal, dear Paul? Chill out, man! Don't take life too seriously. We all get the crown. In short, I think it's very fair to say not all of us love His appearing in the same way or to the same degree. In some sense, the harder you work for something, the more joy there is for you when you actually get it. There are those who strive for it and make it their sole aim. And when it actually happens, even if all the rewards were the same for them, those who have loved His appearing most will be most fulfilled with joy when He actually comes. Last one. There are many more. Matthew ten forty-two, And whoever gives one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple. Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This one is so precious to me because it shows that there is nothing too small, if done in faith, that escapes the notice of the Lord Jesus when it comes to doling out of rewards. Remember the parable? Even as you did it unto one of the least of these, you did it unto me. 
Jesus takes it personally, and He will reward you as if every little thing done in faith in Him for His sake, as if you were doing it for Him directly. How's that for a life-transforming, decision-making paradigm? So yes, you ought to seek the reward. Not only that, if you are not seeking the reward then it's worth asking why. Why have you abandoned the Bible's own teaching about motivation? Why have you abandoned the Bible's teaching on this eternal incentive for life? Maybe this is why depression is, is such a common problem in the church, because if it's all the same and we all end up there and life just becomes completely forgotten and our choices don't have consequences for reward or loss, then there's no point to anything. Maybe it's the reason we lack motivation. Because we can't see the reward that awaits. So what is the reward exactly? Can we be more precise? We've talked about it generally from the text. But can we say more? Can we be more specific? I think so. First, we should say that the reward or what the reward or the prize is not. It is not a better looking house or room in heaven. The kinds of sacrifices that this life will summon to you aren't worth it if all, of it, all it means is better trim or higher ceilings in your place there in glory. Secondly, it is not more access to better things in heaven, like a VIP pass at a theme park. All those who overcome through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony will be welcome into the innermost place and on the throne itself. Because if you are in Christ through faith, then wherever He goes, you can go. So just read the promises that Jesus makes to the seven churches. The reward is also not only just a few of us, maybe the really serious Christians, that we're the only ones who get to hear well done. The words, well done, my good and faithful servant, are said to all of the servants, regardless of how big of return they got from the investment that the master gave them. The only one who didn't hear that was the wicked and unfaithful servant. And it's not just a bigger or prettier crown or a chest full of medals, like we're in RAs or GAs again, right? If you know, you know. And again, that's just not worth the cost, if all it is is a trophy or a prettier crown. No, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ is this. Perhaps there are many different ways to speak about it helpfully. But I think this is the most helpful way. It is greater and deeper joy in the Lord. I think you can see this in the statement of those parables about the servant and his talent. It is an upward summons. Enter the joy of your Master. At the beginning of chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord. I think it's the central question of the chapter. How do we do that better? You see this as well in the Beatitudes. Blessed, happy, joyful are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You see this as well in Simeon, the old man I'm going to try to get through this. I don't know why this passage is so moving. I know some of the reasons why, because it's about this. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. It was the same Jesus that everyone else could see 
but because he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was the one who got the most joy in that moment when he actually came. This is the invitation to us with the day of Jesus Christ. To all those who have loved His appearing. Perhaps more than anyone else, Simeon was waiting for Him. His longing was fulfilled. His yearning was brought to consummation. His striving to see the salvation of the Lord was brought to its fullness. And in those moments, there was more joy in his heart, even perhaps more than his own parents. Because of his yearning, because of his striving, because of his fasting and praying, whatever he did in his waiting for the consolation of Israel. Brothers and sisters, your time here on this earth, however many years the Lord gives you, is meant to prepare you for more glory. And you have an opportunity to, if I might put it this way, take that God-shaped hole in your heart or that Christ-shaped hole in your heart and make it bigger so that when you actually are in His presence, there will be more joy for you than otherwise. That is the reward. Those of you, those of us who heed this upward call of God in Christ and think and live according to the example we have in the Apostle Paul, will have more joy and be able to experience more joy forever. Again, there are other ways to think about the rewards, such as maybe honor, praise, even responsibility and glory. We could chase all those down. We don't have time. I think joy is the most straightforward. If I may put it this way to help you, those of us, those who spend more time and effort straining in this life to get ready for the place that we, were, we, will, uh, we are all going, we'll be more happy once we all get there than the rest of us. A few objections as we try to wind this thing down. What about the glory of God? I thought we were supposed to live for the glory of God and seek His glory, and now you're telling us it's for the reward. I think the answer is that God is not glorified in the ways that He deserves by anything you do if you're not also wanting it. Again, God is not honored by gloomy, begrudging worshipers. Only those who want God to be glorified for their own benefit actually glorify God. Second objection, will this cause envy in heaven? If some people arrive and they're have greater capacity for joy than the rest of us? Won't that cause us, the normies, right, to be jealous of them? I don't think so. Um, many examples that we could use here, the one that comes to mind is the miracle on ice. Were you jealous of those hockey players, those of you who were able to watch it or when you saw that movie, for being the ones to receive the gold medal? Or were you glad in the fact that they were honored representing us together in that feat. That's how I think it will feel. And I don't want to live the life of a martyr in the technical sense, but I hope there's something special for them. I hope they are greatly honored in ways that maybe I don't need to experience because of their sacrifice. It will be part of the basis of your joy that those who have strived, that's a proper way to say it, like the Apostle Paul, will receive more capacity for joy. Third objection, this is all really depressing. If this is true, then I've wasted a great deal of my life, a great deal of my time. Don't worry about that. Forget what lies behind and strain towards the goal. Think about this. Do you have three more years? I mean, that's, that's most of us. You have, you have three more years of your life. Consider what one life for three years devoted to the pursuit of this thing yielded in the life of the Lord Jesus. Not an issue about time. Fourth objection, this is really all confusing. I don't understand. Let me simplify it for you. Ask yourself this question. What are you doing? How are you living? How are you acting and speaking that would really not change at all if Jesus isn't coming back? Or to ask it in the opposite way, 
Is there anything you can point to in your life that there is no other reason that you're doing it or thinking it or saying it but that the Lord Jesus is coming back? It's a devastating question. Last objection. Where's the gospel in all of this? The answer is, of course, that this is not something that Jesus summons us to from heaven and just demands that we do down here on earth to get ready for our inheritance. This is exactly what He came to earth to show us how to do. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the forerunner of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. This is exactly the same mindset that was at work in the mind of the Lord Jesus as He went to the cross to gain the reward. Greater joy in glory that us securing our salvation and bringing to Himself a people who glorify Him is somehow, as mysterious as that may sound, causing Him greater joy. So what about you? Can the Apostle's statement stand true for you? What needs to change so that it could be true? What about us as a church? Part of why this fits so well with the Life Together series is that some of these questions are virtually impossible to answer on your own. You need the voice and assessment of a loving body of believers in your life to help you ask and answer these questions rightly and to see where you need to change. Third question, what are you really seeking? To answer this question truthfully and fully is to know oneself in truth and fullness. The terrible truth about this passage and the whole discussion, as we saw in our consideration of biblical ethics and anthropology, is that you do seek something. You do strive and strain for something. What is it? Is it to get ready to enter your inheritance? Is it living like this is all going to happen and believing with full confidence that everything you do in faith for the sake of the Lord Jesus will come with eternal reward? Or is it something else? I hope you can realize what's at stake isn't just some ethereal, far-out way of thinking about the Christian life. Our perseverance is somehow at stake, wrapped up in all this. End of the chapter. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will Transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Father, I know I may have raised more questions than I answered, but I hope that as we have considered the example of the Apostle Paul and his straining and striving to gain the prize, to possess the reward, that you would challenge us and show us that maybe the way that we've thought about this whole Christian life might need some serious improvement and correction. If that's the case for anyone in this room, I pray that we would have the happiness and gladness that even in the deconstruction and reconstruction of our motivations to be more pleasing to you, comes with it great reward and glory. Help us see the joy in this summons. 
you have granted us to live life in a way where every moment could yield eternal joy. Help us live with the gravity of that truth and and may we not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, Lord, help us trust you that we will reap if we do not give up. In Jesus' name, amen.